Yeah, Rob must have lost the bet. And Rob came over. He's like, hey, Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? I'm like, I just don't want to do this, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired. Do you understand? He's like, yeah, I've been with you since the first race. And, you know, like to do. And that's what, you know, the organizers will tell you, like to do one of these in a lifetime is should be enough. But my goal was to, first of all, finish the series. And then to add to that, I wanted to finish it in one calendar year. Hey, 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 so glad you're here. This is Tracking Yes, and you are exactly where you're meant to be. I'm your host, Liz Wilson, coach, creator, and round-the-clock philosopher. And this, my friends, is where the magic happens. Join me and my guests for stories that will inspire you to dial up your curiosity, fine-tune your courage and wisdom, and create an empowered relationship with whatever's happening now. In November of 2014, Lynn Huynh became the first Canadian woman to complete the Four Deserts, a series of 250-kilometer, self-supported, seven-day races through the hottest, driest, and windiest deserts on Earth. And by doing so in one calendar year, she also became the first Canadian woman and the eighth woman in history to complete it as a Grand Slam. Join us as Lynn shares a hilarious, moving, and remarkable account of how she defied circumstance to make her goal happen, and in doing so, conjured her own brand of magic. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to have you here. <laughs> My friend Jess told me about your story, and I recognized you instantly as someone who lives the ethos of tracking yes. You're really undaunted by adversity. In, in fact, you rise to the challenge of it, and you get really creative. And you've said you believe that if you authentically tell the universe your soul's desires— it will send things into your life to help you get there. Absolutely. And as I've learned more about your escapades, it's clear you mean that. <laughs> so I want to start I want to start by actually naming this incredible accomplishment. In 2014, you set 3 Canadian records in one day. Um <laughs> By completing what Time Magazine calls one of the top 10 endurance challenges in the world. You yes. ran the Four Deserts Ultramarathon Series, which is four seven-day, 250-kilometer self-supported ultramarathons across these forbidding landscapes in the most extreme weather conditions. And so how the hell does somebody decide to do this? <laughs> like, what happened for you that you arrived at this achievement in your life? Um, so this is just uh, a little clarification note. The series is set up so that it is seven days, 250 kilometers. Antarctica is is kind of a different kind of beast because it's all weather dependent. So in some iterations of the race, they've managed to hit the seven days. There have to be safety considerations and such. And if we stray too far from the boat, you can't really guarantee all the runners' safety. So it's based on time. So we would, uh, we sailed into Antarctica, we would get on to these little zodiacs and get to shore, change into our running gear, 
And they would say, here is the loop that we've mapped out. Run it as many times as you can until we say stop. (laughs) 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 So it's like always reminds me of my favorite movie, Cool Hand Luke. And it just sounded, you know, it felt so pointless because it's like, you know, in the movie, he had to to dig a hole. (laughs) And then the other warden would come by and be like, what's your dirt doing in my ground? And then he would have to like put the dirt back into the hole. And the other person would come by and be like, what's your dirt doing in my hole? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I remember in that movie, oh, such a good movie, Paul Newman. I remember in that movie, the, the whole reason they kept making him dig this ditch and put the dirt in and then take the dirt out is they were actually trying to break his spirit and break his will. (laughs) It just felt like the most pointless thing because you never knew when the day would end. So like there were some days that we were out there for 12 hours. Some days we were out there for five because the weather was so bad that we had to the safety of the boat, the ship that that we sailed in on. Um, For me, like the Antarctic race was almost the easiest because I just... It felt a little bit like a victory lap because it didn't matter how many kilometers I did, like I would still finish. But it was even the top runner didn't hit like the top runner. He was this male runner from Spain and he, he's an Olympic. He's an Olympic runner. And even he didn't hit 250. I only managed 70 kilometers in that race. And that's not from lack of effort. Like there were days where I ran for five hours and only covered 12 kilometers because the snow was knee deep. Um, yeah, so it was definitely not, not lack of effort, but for our safety, one of the days was called off. Okay. We had to start heading back. Well, and, and safety, why? Because of extremes of temperature? Uh, yeah, just like shifting winds and making sure that we would still be able to get back to the boat safely for, on these little Zodiacs and Yeah. Well, I mean, running in knee deep snow, like (laughs) seriously, you can already triple your, your distance just for that. Yeah. This is not like running shoes in summer. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, minus 20 and. Right. So, so they sent you out there and said, run till we tell you to to stop stop running. (laughs) So you might be running for three hours or you might be running for 13 hours. Yes. So tell me how mentally, how you deal with that. Yeah. Well, you tell me how mentally you deal with that. How did you? Well, I cried a lot. <laughs> if you ask any runner on the boat, it's like, I think she was the one that was always crying. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this. And because the turnaround between the third race, uh, which was in Chile, and the fourth race, Antarctica, the third race happened in uh, late October. And then three weeks later, so I flew back to Calgary from Chile, taught for about two weeks, gathered my gear, and then flew back to the, you know, to the tip of Argentina to set sail for Antarctica. So there was only like a three-week turnaround. So I was tired. <laughs> and and it, it is like, it is, excuse my language, it was a mind fuck. Like, yeah. how long do you want me to work out? Imagine, imagine showing up at a personal training session and knowing that it's, you know, it's an hour. But this one, like, you don't know when it ends. Like, you don't know when it ends. Like, and there were some points in the course where, um, yeah, you're just you're just looping, right? So you're stopping at, you know, the little aid station that's set up at the 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 start 
splash finish line, hoping that they'll say, okay, just do one more lap. You never know. And they don't say just stop. Like they still say, okay, do one more. Okay. Just do one more. Just do one more. Right. They don't tell you do one more and you'll be finished. Yeah. They Cause they're like, just do, do, one, do more one more. And we'll see. Yeah. Do one more. And we'll see. Oh my God. <laughs> So yeah. that was a total mindfuck. <laughs> I mean, literally, right? When you're trying to get through something that is extremely challenging, the thing that gets you through is that you see an endpoint. Yes. And I think that's why mentally this this pandemic is so crushingly difficult is no, there is no end line. Like nobody knows when this ends. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the kind of reserve you have to tap into. Like you're out there, it's minus 20. You're, I avoided eating or drinking anything because there were really no facilities. Like there was a bucket, <laughs> literally a large bucket set up to, to, um, for, for you to, to, to use. And there were like these little, they had set up this little kind of like, metal kind of scaffolding but it was only really like waist high so like people could just see you using this little um facility and and then all the human waste was taken back onto the boat but you you know you can't you can't pee when you're on the course you can't pee at all and so you're you're cold you're hungry you're tired you're thirsty but you're also don't want to drink anything. <laughs> and how how long was the loop that they kept saying do one more and then we'll see? Um, it varied. So um, and and we made like a few different stops uh, at different points of on different islands. One, I think the shortest one was three k. <laughs> so you're just like going around and around in circles. <laughs> like, yeah. Um. And as and then as long as I think seven or eight, maybe. Well, it's interesting because you said I, I cried a lot and it was a total <laughs> head game. But it, it, I'm interested since you tied this to um, the pandemic that we're currently Absolutely. navigating. What did you learn that about how to navigate the uncertainty of how long this torture <laughs> will go on for? I think it, it's ironic because we're always like look beyond yourself, right? Like look, look into the distance or look like, you know, like kind of understand your place in the universe and how small you are. And just like that kind of like outward, big thinking, understanding of your place in this world of things. And it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite. Like the only way that you can get through this is to go as deeply inward as possible, like go into your mind, go into your own thoughts, like forget where you are for a moment, forget where you are for many moments, like forget the pain, forget your frozen eyelashes, forget like the dust in your eyes, you know, referencing the desert. Um, Just, yeah, it was just a lot of quiet, meditative introspection. And what did you, like, what did you find there? that made you able to cope? Well, that's the beauty of it is like, in each of us is the universe, right? Like the deeper you go is this like 
infinite expanse of emotion and knowledge and experience. And it's where your, it's where that infinite energy and spirit comes from. Yeah, I'm still trying to feel how that helped. How did that help? Because <laughs> sometimes like when you look ahead to the path and it's just this endless path of ice and, and torture, like there's a stillness in your own mind and in your own heart that is so calming and so comforting. And did you find that between the, the crying jags? I truly did. Yeah, and there's there's a level of quiet in Antarctica that you will never, and in the North Pole, like, like on a still day where there's no wind at all, like it is just eerily quiet and all you have is your breath and your steps and your thoughts and your meditations and the mantras and and your own your own voice is very loud and very clear well i love also that you cried a lot a lot but i also laughed a lot i'm like this weirdo that <laughs>, laughs and cries simultaneously <laughs> well it's like it's like a, it's like a, it's almost like you're like discharging exactly something. like like whatever it is like it is an emotional release right like it's i remember there was this one one day i was not i was just not looking forward to it i i was tired and these guys that i had been running uh, the other three desert races with we became really close friends and i could see them kind of like huddling in the corner and i heard one of them say okay whose turn is it <laughs> Yeah, Rob must have lost the bet. And Rob came over. He's like, hey, Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? I'm like, I just don't want to do this, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired. Do you understand? He's like, yeah, I've been with you since the first race. And, you know, like to do. And that's what, you know, the organizers will tell you, like to do one of these in a lifetime is is enough. It's enough. Should be enough. (laughs) But to... Like my goal was to first of all finish the series, and then to add to that, I wanted to finish it in one calendar year. Um, Why was that important? Um, because that would make me the eighth woman in history to do so. Like I know a lot of runners who did finish the series eventually, after, um, and you know some of them spread it out over like four, five, six years. Like maybe they might do one every two years. Um, because after that much time has passed, they forgot how much the first one hurt. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, like, and so we call it like runner's amnesia. Like it wasn't that bad. And then, you know, our partners, our friends, our loved ones beside us, they're like, but you hate it. <laughs> like, yeah. So like forcing it was, so that calendar year is 2014 and it was February, June, October, and November. And so you decided you were going to do all four in one, in one year. Cal- in one calendar year, yeah. And in that year, you had four massive um, undertakings. Yes. Did you change your mind at any point and have to talk yourself back into it? or No, because like I feel like we are in this age where it's very hard. Firsts are very hard. 
And for me, like the great thing that spurred this whole thing on was as soon as I read on the website that no Canadian woman had completed the series, that was it. Like there's, there are very few things in my life that I would get to say because it's that I was the first to do Mm. for any of us. Like there's been so many amazing intrepid people before us. Like we live in an age where every, it's almost like everything has already been attempted. And if I could die being the first to do something, I knew like it was, failure was just not an option. And why the first, like what, what is meaningful for you about that? Yeah, good point. Cause if there was, if there was, if there had been another Canadian woman to do it and I would have been like the second, I don't know that I would have cared. That's a really good question. Like, why did it matter so much that I was the first? But like I said, like it's to be able to leave your mark and on your deathbed to know that you were the first to do this thing is like, yeah, like there was nobody with the imagination or the curiosity or the perseverance or the wherewithal to attempt it. Like, and then you, and then you go and do it. And then there have been obviously others after me, right? Like that was 2014 and there's been a few Canadian women who've done it. And, but I don't know. I just, Mary Oliver, like, tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Like I never wanted to be on my deathbed and be like, did I do all I can? Like, was it worth it? Did I live meaningfully? Like, what am I going to be remembered for? Well, it it also feels like the that first thing to be the first to do something is if if I was imagining what because I, I don't know if I've ever been the first to do anything, but if I just feel into that, it's like, and I mean, on the one hand, I'm thinking that everything we ever do is the first time that thing has ever been done. But but there's something about this notable first in, in a realm of building achievement and building accomplishment. There's something about, um, I, I feel like what you're touching into there is, it's almost like the, the ultimate touching of creativity. Yes. Because something exists now that didn't yes. exist before yeah. because you made it exist. Yeah. And you know what I love? Um, you know what I love being like, if you have a speed record, it gets broken. Other records get broken, but no one can be firster than you. <laughs> like you will always be first. <laughs> and like, it doesn't matter that I came nearly last place for all of those races. Like <laughs> I call myself the extreme non-athlete. <laughs> um, but that's the beauty of being first. It didn't matter how you got there. It didn't matter in what spectacular fashion you finished in. You finished. And that was the feat. Yeah, well, that's interesting because 
I watched your TED Talk, and you guys have to watch it. I'll post a link. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. And you just did such a great job of recounting your experience. And, and okay, like, let's get real here. These were not... Um, <laughs> Yeah. These were not stellar marathon times. Like that was not the point. Well, yeah, like so my my I I call myself a non-athlete for a reason because I'm actually really good friends with many actual athletes. Um so my best marathon time is is 5 hours. And just to put things into perspective, when Oprah ran her marathon, she did it in 4:30. So Oprah's faster than me. <laughs> and an elite elite athlete would do a marathon in like what three hours ish yeah like to qualify for boston you you have to be like for a female like under depending on your age like 330 but like the olympians the olympians would come in like somewhere between two and two and a half yeah yeah and then you um, had you had one where your time was, I don't remember which one it was. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, so like, so to put it into perspective, like my best marathon time was Calgary, you know, home, home, home field advantage, home course advantage, so to speak. Um, and that was five hours, like July, asphalt. Like, it's like <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you throw me in the Antarctic and like knee deep snow, <laughs> brutal temperatures. Um, so my Antarctic race took eight and a, almost nine hours. <laughs> like that's, yes, that's not even called running at that point. You know? Well, but, but that speaks to uh, what you were up to with this undertaking, mm -hmm. which yeah. was not, okay, you had your goal of being the first at something. So that was a, like, that was a target that you were shooting for, but you weren't going for like a land speed record or, or anything no, like that. Not at and, all. Like, yeah, my, my goal was just to finish uninjured. And when you have so many races in one year, like it's, there are so many, like twice I lost my luggage. It was recovered in time, but if I didn't have my supplies, I couldn't have started the race. And, you know, like people... It's very risky. There are people's shoes fell apart or they came down with this weird 24 hour stomach bug. Like there were so many factors that could have kind of derailed my entire year, but a million little pieces have to be perfectly aligned for you to get to the end of four races in one year. And I, I saw some very, very strong runners drop out because of something something small like heat exhaustion or there was like an electrolyte imbalance and they their legs cramped up you, you know what I mean like some really amazing runners were taken out for you know you step wrong you twist your ankle um, and di did you have a did you have any moments in there or a moment where you you really wondered if you were going to be able to complete it um, yeah, the, the desert is a peculiar scenario because it's, it's one of those situations where quitting is literally harder than to keep going. And, and this is what I mean. So the distance between each checkpoint is anywhere between 10 and 15 kilometers. And so if you decide to quit somewhere in, in between that, like you would, first of all, like 
maybe you twisted your ankle or maybe you're not feeling well. Like you would have to sit there, stay put until one of the staff could come. And somehow they would have to like radio in and alert like the the rescue team, which consisted of a camel. Like you don't know how long you're going to be <laughs> sitting there wait, waiting to be rescued by a camel. And this is not the like the most speedy exit. Like you don't get like whisked off to safety. Like then you'd be like on the back of this camel that walks slower than you do. Like, you know what I mean? Like um, this is all explained to us where like there were some points in the race where it was not even accessible by camel. So that like, you would have to wait for two race officials to come with a, whatever, a gurney and to like pull you out. Like, so. Yeah. Well, this is making me want to circle back to the question that we started with, which is what had you decide that you wanted to take on this challenge in the first place? Because at the end of my life, I wanted to know that I, that I was able to achieve something extraordinary. Yeah. And even to get to the place where this landed on your radar, you first had to, like you ran a, a marathon in the Antarctic and you ran, then you ran a marathon at the North Pole. So mm -hmm. those two things happened before this was on your radar. Is that yes. correct? Yes. And just to make the distinction for the listeners, a marathon is 42 kilometers or 26.2 miles. And then an ultra marathon falls under the umbrella of any foot race that is longer than that distance. So before we get to the insanity of the ultramarathon quest, how does somebody decide to go run a marathon in the Antarctic? Oh, you don't. <laughs> you don't decide. I, I've just been traveling. I had the travel bug since I was finished university and I traveled a lot um, and my goal was to travel to as many countries as my age and, you know, I'm not far off, but it, after a while you get the, the traveling has no meaning anymore. Cause it's like, there's nothing that kind of sets one trip aside from another. Like it's, it all felt kind of the same. So then um, as a runner, I, I just had this idea that, Oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll run a marathon on each continent that I visit. Because I had done Calgary, and then I ran one. I li lived in Asia for a few years, as I ran one there. So I was like, oh, that's two out of seven. Like that's that's a nice thing to finish. Like maybe maybe that's how I'll mark each continent with something really special by running a marathon on each continent. And and that's how I came across the Antarctic Ice Marathon website and. And then when I saw the price, I was like, there's no way. There's no way that I'm doing this. Like, What was the price? Well, so there's two ways to get to Antarctica. Um, you can, as a marathon, you can sail there, which is technically St. George's Island is actually not part of Antarctica. So I didn't want to do that. But like to fly in so that you're a few hundred miles from the South Pole, like this most southern, southern race in the entire world is called the Antarctic Ice Marathon. So you have to fly in on this like, Russian plane and like there's a research camp there so that's where we stayed and at that time so 2011 so 10 years ago right like 10 years ago it was 12 or 13,000 <laughs> so 
I'm a teacher. Like I, I make a decent living. I don't know that I make enough that I can afford a $13,000 raise. So then, I, so I, so I, you know, I kind of pushed that idea aside and I was like, well, like maybe, you know, it's maybe that'll be a retirement dream or, or something like something where hoping something would happen that I could be given this opportunity. And then, and then that's when my friend saw this, posting by CBC and they were having a contest and they wanted Canadians to share with them what their ultimate active adventure would be. And um, it was a 400 word limit, I remember. And all of the entries were posted online. The prize was $10,000 to be used towards your ultimate active adventure. And I was so surprised, like I read hundreds and hundreds of entries, which were easy because everyone had just written a sentence or two. Oh, they didn't use their 400 words. Which is so peculiar to me. Um, So I read enough and I I remember I, I spent one entire weekend writing and editing my 400 words to be the most amazing 400 words. And it took me 10 hours if you if you can imagine like 10 hours to write 400 words to explain why running in antarctica was so important to me and i firmly believe it was that effort and that i'm a, a, a decent writer i would say like that helped me win that $10,000 you won the contest yes and then that was the beginning. So there were thousands of entries from all across Canada. And I got this email and they like, congratulations, you are the winner of the CBC contest. And $10,000 is a lot of money for me. You know, like I'm, I'm not an oil tycoon. <laughs> or like, <laughs> um, you just made $1,000 an hour. That's, yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and it was so worth it. And so then suddenly it was... Oh, okay, I guess I am going to run this race. And then um, that literally sparked this incredible chain of events that from that point onward and for another four or five years, everything that I imagined and everything that I needed to be delivered into my life happened. I finished the Antarctic marathon. That was one that took me like over eight hours. Um, And then when I came back to Calgary and was talking to my friends and I had this, my roommate, my roommate, my tent mate, we stayed in tents in Antarctica. So it was me and Allison. uh, She's from the UK and she was a writer for Renner's World. And anyhow, so I finished the race and I just remember saying to Allison, like, you know what, That, that wasn't that bad. Like it could have been worse. And by worse, I mean, like I could have fallen through a crevasse. I could have lost my, you know, fingers or toes to frostbite. Like I I was going to return to Calgary fully a whole human, you know, (laughs) I get to like leaving your pound of flesh. I get to leave, you know, I get to keep my nose and ears. Like I was pretty pleased. Like, um, but that's when she said, if you like this race, I think you would love the North Pole marathon and 
prior to hearing that word come like that phrase come out of her mouth like i i didn't even know that these things existed so that was the first i would say that was the first magical thing that this person that held this piece of knowledge that would change the course of my next year or so like but i because the the cbc contest had gone so well i i came home and i thought you know what i'm 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 just going to put it out there like so when people ask me what i wanted to happen next in my life like what are your goals i literally said i'm going to win a contest <laughs> and i'm going to run the north pole wow so like the they north- were absolutely intertwined yeah cuz i'm like this and it wasn't even uh it wasn't even it didn't feel like a wishful statement to me at the time like it was just matter of fact like i am going to win this contest i don't and i said i don't know what contest yet cuz i haven't found it yet but i'm going to win a contest and i'm going to run the north pole because south pole north pole <laughs> like, it it just, makes perfect sense, right? Very, very symmetrical. Right? Like, <laughs> just like, like, you know, when people say, like, I've been to the ends of the earth, I'm like, I actually have. <laughs> like, literally. So this had to happen. It had to happen. It just felt, it felt really imbalanced. There's the yin and the yang of life, right? Like, it just, I'm all about balance and harmony. Um, but I said this, I said these words to so many people. And that was, I came back. the race was 2011 november so i would have said this january of 2012 that come back from south america and started work again and then that summer a contest and this time it was kellogs and it was through vector cereal was trying to you know because they have kellogs is just a bunch of like sugary non nutritious sorry for anyone who likes those sugar cereals it's really just you're eating candy for breakfast <laughs> a bowl full of candy with milk <laughs> so they had um they were really pushing vector as like their kind of the the breakfast for athletes you know like it's like mildly nutritious like <laughs> but they you know they 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 uh they had a contest and it was to win $10,000 to which one was this oh uh, the question was do you have the power can you know can vector be the give you the power it was called the power to go further ah <laughs> uh, perfect for a marathon i know so i i wrote about i said that i had run antarctica and i'm like logically like i just stands to reason that i would want to run the north pole and and then i won and that was you know the contest was around the summer it took some time for you know like the 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 contest to close and then for them to make the decision but here it was in my lap again $10,000 and and i just i really want to iterate how important this this money is to me like just my friend works in oil and gas and he does 3 400,000 so if you're making that kind of money like maybe maybe a $15,000 raise is nothing to you but a $15,000 raise is a lot to me and had i not won these contests like there's zero chance that i would i couldn't justify spending it in that way 
Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I travel a lot, but none of my trips were $15,000 trips. Like maybe I go to Spain or I go to Vietnam to visit family. Like, so this, these contests were the only way that this happened. It's so incredible, right? Because a contest isn't just, (laughs) well, I'm going to win a contest, right? There's so much that's out of your hands there. Yeah, it's not, you know, it's like the same, like I I, I do roll my eyes when, when people are like, well, when I win the lottery, I'm like, come on. Like as lucky as I am, I'm like, you're not going to win the lottery. <laughs> like, this well, is not it's a, also this... not entirely random because winning a contest, you actually can contribute a lot. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Okay, so then what happened? You went to the um, North Pole. You ran. Yeah, so, you know, so I said I'm gonna win a contest, and and lo and behold, it happened, right? Like so, I've, later on in that the same year that I said it, and let's think about this: the same year that I said it, not not years later. So it's like I have this image of this like little I call it like the universe committee, and it's just like this committee of beings that watch over me and give me whatever I need. <laughs> and I've always thought that there, you know, and I, I joke that I'm like, all right, committee. <laughs> like, I really Get on it guys. Well, like, yeah, like my family of seven siblings, two parents for so the family of 10 for you to survive a three day journey in the open seas in a rickety small fishing vessel and land randomly in this tiny little Island with other refugees. But the fact that our boat didn't capsize, you know, like that we didn't lose anyone to illness or that was my greatest contest, that that we survived the boat journey out of Vietnam and we survived the year at a refugee camp before we were sponsored to Canada. So there's a lot, like a lot of my mentality of, you know, growing up, I just heard all these stories of these brutal, brutal struggles of my older siblings and my parents surviving this 20 year civil conflict in Vietnam and like hearing the bombs fall over Saigon. And I guess I've always like uh, this, this feeling, you know, this, this outlook of like gratitude and luck and fortune was cultivated at a very young age, because it was kind of it's all I heard. So my eldest brother was born in 1955 when the war began, the Vietnam War, and it was the country was divided into North and South. And then my mom just kept having children until 1974 when I came along. And the war ended four months later in April of 1975. And then I have a younger brother who was born in 77. But my younger brother and I were almost like ridicule is a very strong word but it was almost like oh well aren't you lucky you know like like you didn't survive the hardest parts of our family's history like you 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 the war was ending like there were food supplies had started to recover and our family was doing well with our business like you know like my sister said like you will never know the pain of splitting a boiled egg four ways so imagine that you're this little kid and, and you know, luckily, luck, lucky for me, lucky, um, I have I have parents and siblings that don't shy 
away from telling the stories of what happened. And my dad was a Ciclo driver who would like just deliver goods around Saigon. It's like this kind of like a three-wheeled bicycles, like that, I mean, you can, you can transport passengers, like, you know, two passengers or goods, right? So he was just like basically a, a bicycle delivery guy. But yeah, like my sister's statement, like you, lucky you, you will never know the pain of, right? So like, I'm sitting at the dinner table, I'm in, I'm in Brooks, Alberta. And you just grew up with these stories, right? Like, lucky you, lucky you. And I think there's a part of me that just took on that mentality and just really like lived it. Like, yeah, lucky me, lucky me. And someone's looking out for me. Someone's looking out for us. Someone's looking out for me in particular. Like, and I never, like I say in my TED talk, like this hope that's stronger than fear. Like, I never had to inherit my sibling or my parents' fear because they absorbed it all for me. So when people are like, weren't you scared to do this? Weren't you like, I don't know. I don't know that I was scared. Like, all I know is that my dad told me at an age that I was old enough to remember the memory, but still young enough that it mattered. But he said, whatever you do in this life, like I want you to remember that by the age of five, you had already done the hardest thing you would ever do. Which was? Surviving a year at the refugee camp and getting with hundreds of people crammed shoulder to shoulder, like on this little fishing vessel to sail to to the refugee camp, like from Vietnam into Indonesia, that you survived, that it was, that the boat was so packed that if someone wanted to turn, like everyone had to like synchronize their movement and be like, all right, everyone shift left. Okay. Seriously? <laughs> That's how packed it was. Just Google any, like there are lots wow. of archived photos of how packed. Standing mm. room only, you know? <laughs> yeah. But this mentality, like people... You know, like my friends always, the nickname is like, they call me luck pusher. So I'm like on Facebook, I'm luck pusher, Twitter, the luck pusher, it's my Twitter handle. But it's this, just, just this idea of like, you've been given what you've been given. Accept it with a, you know, gracious, grateful attitude. And then just push it a little bit more. You know, like, <laughs> okay, this is our starting point. Okay. Now what? Oh, I want a ten thousand dollars for CBC, which in itself was what are the odds, right? Like, and then not to say that I wasn't grateful, but I just turned around. And I'm like, oh, all right, universe committee. <laughs> like, like, I just, I just need another. I just need you to help me. I just need another contest. I want to run the North Pole, and and then I did, and. When something is so meant to happen, like it's going to set you on a path where you didn't know there was a path. This is what kills me is I didn't know the North Pole Marathon. It was because of my tent mate, Allison. She said, go run this race. And then I did. And then at the end of the North Pole Marathon, minus 33 knee deep snow, brutal. It took me 10 hours. <laughs> so two hours slower than Antarctica. Um, 
I got to the finish line. Okay, so you're not you're not actually advancing in this game. <laughs> I was just like, when do you peak? I was like, no, I peak. <laughs> My first race was the fastest in Calgary, and ever since then, like every marathon has been slower and slower and slower. And slower. <laughs> just like, you're like you're going backwards. <laughs> um, and I remember saying like, that was totally reasonable. And this runner looked at me, he's like, are you kidding me? Like you were out there for 10 hours. Like I finished, I finished six hours ago. You know? <laughs> um, and I said, no, I, I'm just, I'm just happy to be alive. There could have been polar bears. There were actually officials with guns in case there were polar bears. And I just mean that it was reasonable. And that's when he said, if you thought that was reasonable, you should try the four deserts. Oh, oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, because he had finished it. And I said, you know, I was like, do you think I have it in me? He's like, yes, the way that you gutted that out and were so like that you would not quit. Like, yes, I think you should try the four deserts. And then when I got back home from the North Pole race, and when I, as soon as I Googled it, that's when it hit me. I'm like, this is what I have to do. And tell and tell tell the listeners what it is. The Four Deserts? Yeah, so the Four Deserts is a series of ultra marathons. They're seven days, uh, six stages, so you do get a rest day, but it's 250 kilometers across, uh, self-supported, across three hot deserts. And if you manage to complete two of them, then you get invited to the fourth desert, which is called the Last Desert, and it takes place in Antarctica. So my goal was to finish the series because no Canadian woman had completed the series. Yeah. And that's when I wanted to do it as in one calendar year. And the cost. (laughs) (laughs) I see a theme emerging. (laughs) Yeah. So the Antarctic race was, I think like 16,000 and each of the desert races was about 5,000 us. So depending on how well our dollar is doing at the time, like 6,000 something Canadian for each of the desert races. And then, and of course, like you're flying to really remote places in the world. So it's not like uh, the flights and the gear was quite expensive as well. And, and you wanted to do it in one year. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know what it was. I, you know, like the whole endeavor would have cost more than, a university degree, essentially. I don't know. I just had this feeling like I I knew I wanted to do it. And I knew that somehow I would find a way. Not even that I would find a way, like that somehow a way would open up to me because I had already started down this path. And it was a friend who sent me the CBC link because she was surfing online one day. And then another friend who sent me the vector link. And, and then I was just so sure that I would, I would do it. So the North Pole was April of 2013. So when I came back from that, like I decided that 2014 was, I was going to do it 2014. And, and also because the organizers only do the Antarctic, um, the Antarctic Ultra every two years. So it would have been. You didn't want to wait three. Yeah. Yeah. So came home, it's about May at this point, And I just thought. No, I'm I'm going for it. 
I'm going to do it. I had never run a distance longer than a marathon, let alone carrying 20, 25 pounds of gear in a desert, (laughs) sleeping on, sleeping in tents and not showering and eating freeze-dried meat, (laughs) freeze-dried food that you carried. Like none of that I had ever experienced. And not just to ask my body to do that, but to, to do it four times. Like it wouldn't have, it, it would have been zero glory for me to get through the first race and stop. There was just no way. Like it, w- it was pointless for me to just do one. So I needed to do all four. It was a package deal goal. It was a package goal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then a contest. Because uh-huh. <laughs> how else was I going to afford it? <laughs> Well, this one is hilarious. It's Husqvarna <laughs> <laughs> because that is not a company traditionally associated with ultra running. Um, they had this really quirky little, it was called Challenge the Impossible. And their products are are really, you know, really powerful and well-made tools that help. Like there's like chainsaws and lawnmowers and stuff, but like a really reputable company. And just, they were the prize was $5,000 and an assortment of chainsaws and lawnmowers. <laughs> <laughs> but the the question was, tell us about a time when you challenged the impossible, which is so funny to me because it they literally make chainsaws. You know? <laughs> like, and they said, like, it doesn't, you know, this story just has to be true. It doesn't actually have to relate to our brand at all. I think a lot of people told stories of how they were doing maybe some kind of home reno or like they related it back to like this chainsaw helped them out in this unique way or something, something, right? And here I am, like I said, you know, because the theme was challenge the impossible. And I said, well, and then I told the story of, at the Antarctica and the North Pole, and and I won. <laughs> you won the Husqvarna contest. Yes. I just want to point out that I'm starting to um, really feel how this all, because at first you started to create from nothing. I'm going to write a story about how I want, want to run a race, and then I'm going to win a contest, and then I'm going to go run the race, and then I'm going to write the story of what happened then. And that's going to have me win another contest. And then I'm going to run another race. And now I have two stories to write an even better story. And then I'm going to win another contest. So it's like you're building, you're building your luck as you go. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So it's, it's like building on, like, I'm just seeing it, how this all works. It's amazing. Yeah. And it really is like, you know, put your, put yourself on the path that you were meant to be and don't try to look too far in the future. Like you're like, how did I get, how did I get through Antarctica? Just don't almost, almost like don't look ahead. Just trust that when your feet touch the ground, it'll be on the path that you're supposed to be on. Like Mm. um, when I, I use the Husqvarna winnings to pay for the first desert. And as I told you, like, one race would have not given me this the sense of satisfaction that I wanted. Like the goal wasn't one. It's I, you know, I said to my friend, it's not called 
one desert. It's called four deserts. (laughs) (laughs) And, but as soon as you start on that path, like, and, and that knowing that the first race was February, the next race was June. Like I, I didn't, I didn't have six or 7,000 Canadian, not to mention like a thousand for the gear and another 1500 for the flight. Like if you round up, like I didn't have $10,000, right? Like, um, but the 5,000 helped me pay for the, the first race was, which was in Jordan. And I got through that. It was really hard. Lots of tears, lots of laughs. Um, (laughs) And, but before Jordan even started, I found another contest (laughs) (laughs) and this time it was with duct tape. Like I just like not, nothing like Nike or (laughs) it's like nothing remotely running related Solomon. Like, no, it was duct tape. (laughs) Like, (laughs) (laughs) and their question was like, tell us how duct tape saved the day. So I talked about using duct tape to tape my goggles to prevent snow blindness in Antarctica. And then see the prize, like that was the smallest prize. Like it was a prize where I was like, well, it's, it's, it's not going to pay. It was a thousand. And and that was like the smallest of the prizes that I had won and, um, or that I was attempting to win. And I'm like, you know what? It's a thousand is still a thousand. It's still going to help me pay for this this next race and when they they you know they read my entry and I I won and I was up against some really awesome stories like this one guy had he was like working in the forest and he accidentally like sliced his side open and had to use duct tape to like tape the wound and then drive himself to the hospital wow I'm like, you picked my story over that guy. (laughs) I would have given it to that guy. (laughs) Yeah. I could have gone blind, but snow blindness is temporary. Like I would have not died. You know, like this guy would have died. So what do you attribute that to that? They picked your story over his. I think it was because it was just so absurd. Like that there, I mean, the, a marathon distance is absurd in in and of itself. And then to place that in Antarctica. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what a unconventional way. I mean, but his is really unconventional too. So I, I don't know. I, I don't do. Know. Oh, you do? Yes. I'm going to do this and I need the funds to do it. You had already decided, like yeah. you're like you're, you're working with energy, like you're creating a field, right? And it's, I really believe this, this is not law of attraction, mumbo jumbo, you're creating in the field of possibility, you're creating an intention that acts like a magnet and draws stuff to it. Mm -hmm. And this only works if you're, if you're participating, if you're contributing stuff into the creation of your luck, like, I think the whole law of attraction thing is just sit in your chair and think about what you want. And if you think it enough, it's going to show up. Um, and that's why that's why that whole thing gets such a bad rap because it's it's missing the essential part of it, which is you have to do shit. Like you have to show up and do your part. And you are. So 
you had to, you kind of had to win, right? It was like inevitable almost. Yeah. And I'm sure you also wrote a very great story and it is a very interesting story. Okay. So, so the, yeah, the, I was, I was just happy for the thousand. Cause if nothing else, I'm like a thousand is a thousand, right? Like a thousand tax free. But then they, I got this like kind of cryptic email like, Hey, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'm the you know director of marketing at duct tape. And just wondering if we can set up a conference call. <laughs> like this can only be good. <laughs> this can only be good. So I was on, there were three people on the call, four people, two, three and, and myself. I think one of them was named Ryan and he opened with, well, We've spent the morning Googling you <laughs> and you make us general, you make us in general feel that we have not done anything with our lives, <laughs> 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 but yeah, they were really, really lovely. And, and they just, so long story short, they ended up sponsoring <laughs> the rest of your, the rest of your races, not, not the rest of it, but it was a, a substantial amount. Yeah. And yeah, enough that I could make the the race happen. (laughs) Okay. So now you're bringing in a whole nother piece of this puzzle, like a a piece of the sense-making of why this works, because that, that those funds came directly from how you're being in the world. Yeah. And my being was my, just my authentic, raw, vulnerable, fearless self. Yeah. And that when I, you know, when I decided to take on this endeavor that I had no way of coming up with the five figures that would get me to the end of that finish line of Antarctica. And I didn't even question it. Like I just, I was just walking through this world as though, Anything that I thought that I could manifest, I could make happen. I want to bring in another thing. So you, in your TED Talk, you said, and you alluded to this earlier in our conversation as well, that you kind of felt you grew up in a paradox in your family because your Mm -hmm. family had endured so much challenge and hardship. Yeah. And you came in late enough in the game that your life was quite comfortable. So there was this contrast and you said that safety didn't feel comfortable. Like something in me, in my soul was yearning for something harder. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just like imagine, you know, imagine sibling rivalry, (laughs) but that it was like, oh, you you think you suffered? Oh, oh, okay. I'll show you suffer. <laughs> well, suffer. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? It's just like like you're trying to one up each other in grades or being a better, I don't know, badminton player. I'm like, no, no, no. I will show you. Like I felt, I felt unheard and unseen. Like I have a brother who for the sake of our family, like he, my parents had asked him to try to smuggle himself out on, on a boat one night to hopefully reach the free world. And 
work hard and then sponsor the rest of us, right? Um, he wasn't so fortunate. He was caught by the Coast Guard and then spent some time in jail, right? So it was like, this is what I've done to, you know, I guess like prove my worth or prove my bravery or something. Like everyone, everyone born and struggling during the war, like any of my older siblings have all kinds of stories of that bravery and that struggle. And I, I didn't, like I was the first in my family. And it's very, very simply, like if you kind of like extend the timeline, like if my if my father only received three years of education uh, because of his circumstance, like I think it's safe to infer that my grandfather either had the same or less. Yeah, and so if you look at the entire lineage of my family, like I didn't descend from lords or we're just like common folk, right? Like, so for me to arrive in Canada and have a full 12 years of schooling and then get to go to university and finish that, like I was the first, not in my family, the first in my entire lineage <laughs> mm-hmm. to receive an education. And not because I'm smarter. I think all my siblings have the mental capacity to do what I did. I just finished high school and university. Like so it was it was a little bit of this is, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is your starting point. Now I just want you to take that and push your luck a little. Everyone has their own start line, like, but you create your own finish line. And so, like, how far, like, if if my siblings were given this much and then I was blessed with this much more, like, my start line is so much, it's light years ahead of theirs. Like, so there was always, like, that. that's kind of, like, you know, I joke about it. There's, like, this really warped sense of sibling rivalry. I'm like, oh, you suffered? Okay, I, I need to create a scenario where I can prove to you that I'm not soft and weak. <laughs> you know, like, I'm tough. <laughs> and and that was, that was the fire. Well, let me ask you something, because I, I really appreciate what you're saying, and I, and I hear how that so informed this. But I have an intuition that there's something else here. So I just want to check with you in this longing for something harder. Yeah. Um, in my experience, too much comfort dulls us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so I feel in you in uh, taking on these challenges, mm-hmm. you we're also going for aliveness, for heightened perception. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is what the people at duct tape perceived <laughs> in you, that aliveness, right? That vitality mm-hmm. that is so compelling that people want to help you. They, they, yeah, <laughs> like it just, you know, I said this in my TED talk, like the universe conspires to help the dreamer. Like, and I haven't even, like, these are just the contests that I won that relate to running. Like, I haven't even touched upon the con- the other contests that help me live my other dreams. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you brought this because I know 
one thing that happened recently is you were just awarded a Canada Council for the Arts grant to write your book. So can you tell us a bit about how that happened? Yeah, yeah. So I'm an instructor at a college and post-secondary funding was slashed by the provincial government. And it's and then you combine that with this pandemic. So, I mean, we had a reduced enrollment anyhow, and then you throw that on top of it. So I, I thought I had stable work. Like I've been with the college for 11 years and I've never found myself in this position that I, I was literally at the end of my financial rope and I had received some work that would take me to the end of September. But after October, I had no way to pay my November, my November mortgage. And then I applied for this Canada Council for the Arts Grant. And it was a Tuesday afternoon in September. I had four days left in my assignment. And I get this email saying, congratulations, you've been given this kind of like, and I, when I came back online after the coffee break with my students, I was still crying. Because once again, the universe saved me. And we like had to submit like a 15 to 20 page writing sample, a proposal of what we wanted to write about. I talked about this memoir that I, you know, the story that I want to tell. And it was enough for a committee of people sitting around a table in Ottawa to decide out of all of the applications that they would have received from across Canada, like that they would award me a $25,000 grant and it couldn't have come at a better time because I had no way to pay my November bills. So it's funny that the only (laughs) um, funny, astounding, extraordinary, that the only way that this memoir is going to be told was because I won, I essentially won another contest. Yeah the contest to top all contests because $25,000 is a lot for me. It's funny because so many of these things have happened in my life that when I actually, you know, I texted all the people that were close to me and said like, I won. And you know what the reaction was? Of course you did. Exactly. Those were the, of course you did. Like four <laughs> words. Like I can't, and I was like, does that mean I get no credit anymore for the things I do? Like, people are just going to be like, what did Lynn do now? Well, like, well, after she wrote her memoir, she turned it into a screenplay. and <laughs> Of course and she did. Now, now it's, they're making a movie out of it. I'm like, yeah, of course she did. Like, <laughs> you, <laughs> you bastards. Like, don't <laughs> get no credit. Like, <laughs> I can't believe you said that. Liz. Literally, like everyone was like, "Of course you did." Like my godfather, who's a you know a member of parliament for Bow Bo River. You know, I texted him like in the middle of his busy, busy workday. He took the time to call me. He's like, he didn't text. Of course you did. He just picked up the phone and said, "Of course you did." I'm like, screw you. Screw well, all if of I you. May reframe, if I may reframe it for you, it is not a nonchalant diminishment. It is a deep bow of acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah, and so someone was like, huh, so you needed a contest. 
<laughs> to, to buy you some time so you could tell about the people about all the other contests. <laughs> so, so meta. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, I don't even know that I could call it faith. Like, I think faith is a label that we use when there's still a, a degree of uncertainty to it. Like, you just got to have faith, right? Like, I wouldn't even call it faith. I just, when I say these things, I, I just, I, I mean them. And when I say I'm, I'm going to do this so this happens, it, it just ends up happening. Well, I want to, I actually want to talk about faith since you brought it, because how, how are you feeling as you were waiting to hear if you were going to get this grant and, and you knew you weren't going to have enough income to make it beyond October? First of all, it's a six-month process, so like I would have applied in April, and then waited until September to hear. But, but knowing my work schedule, right? So I was like, number one, I have to wait till September to hear, and knowing that I only had some work until the end of September, and then nothing for October, November, December. Like, all my friends was the same kind of messaging, like, "Don't worry, it's gonna work out." It always works out for you. I've never seen it not work out for you. And that's that was when I had to dig the deepest. And and like I was saying, like going inward, like looking at the expanse of my life and all the experiences and and throwing myself into learning a new instrument. Um, just to like dull the pain of that uncertainty. Like I would say like that was when I lost came very close to losing hope. Well, hang on. I want to I want to give the audience a little bit more about what you just said throwing yourself into learning a new instrument. Because this t- is remarkable to me too that this was one of the tools you <laughs> used to navigate this. Was you learned to play guitar, which you didn't know how to play. Yes. <laughs> and not just learn when times are uncertain learn a musical <laughs> instrument <laughs> no when times are uncertain go into yourself the answer is always there music is free and what a better way to like regain that sense of accomplishment and power and than to master an instrument. And like, I, I you know, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a braggart, but my teacher who's been in the industry and um, been playing for decades and his band was recently signed with Sony. And, but he's like, in my 11 years of teaching, I've never met anyone like you. But that's what happens when you throw yourself wholeheartedly into something and with the belief that you can do it. And I went from zero skills to like learning Jimi Hendrix songs at six months with zero musical background. And and I asked him one day, I was like, what what like what do other students learn at six months? And he's like, uh chords, like campfire songs. <laughs> like, he, meanwhile, like I'm throwing myself into the blues and spending like five or six hours a day like learning music theory and all the greats and like I took this Guns N' Roses song and turned it into a blues song and just playing around and I'm I'm astonished by it. But 
I think the best coping mechanism when when your outside world, as we're all seeing right now, is so fraught with uh, uncertainty. Like and like I said, nobody knows the finish line of this. Like the way to is just to retreat into yourself, and the answer is there. Well, what this? I mean, this is such a powerful teaching right here that. Because that act of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm out of work, right? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm going to have money. I've got all this time. I don't have money. I'm going to learn to play the guitar. And not not just learn, like, because he said to me, like, what is your goal? And I said, my goal is to play like Slash in three years. Yeah, this is what I mean. It's not just, <laughs> this is the point that I'm trying to make here, Lynn, is it's not just, well, let me pick around a little bit on a, guitar to occupy my time, you threw yourself into something that would consume you, like that would ask so much of you, but it would connect you with your inner capacity to rise to a challenge. That's how you got yourself through the, the fear and the hopelessness of, I don't have any money and I don't have any employment, right? It's you did something that would connect you with your own innate capacity to rise to a challenge. And for me, like it's the, you know, the guiding principle is something that hangs on my kitchen wall. And it's back to that Mary Oliver quote is tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Like I, you know, a few months prior to this pandemic happening, like I lost my favorite person in the world. And when you have grief and then you pile a pandemic on top of that, like you have two choices. You can, like my favorite Lumineers lyric, like you can, will you just lay down and dig your grave or will you rail against the dying day? There is this, there is but this one life that we can use and like, I don't have children and I don't know what kind of legacy I'll leave, but I just know that on my deathbed that I want to know that I railed against the dying day, like that I lived the shit out of this life. And that's what I plan to do. Like, It's what you are doing. Yeah. Because of course you did, (laughs) like, and just look at the world with a little bit of curiosity and a whole lot of bravery, like the what if, wherever your start line is, be grateful, just push your luck a little bit. Well, you said something in your TED Talk, and I, I, I want to know a bit more about where this came from and what it means for you. You, you. you posted a slide that said, in my dream, the angel shrugged and said, if we fail this time, it will be a failure of imagination. And then she placed the world gently in the palm of my hand. So tell me about that. Yeah. And one, you know, one of the things I regret is not, not placing the artist's name on, on that slide. It's by a, uh, an artist, um, artist slash poet by the name of Brian Andreas. And it was a gift 
this beautiful kind of like simplistic drawing was gifted to me by a friend over a decade ago. And it just captures everything that I feel that all of our problems can be solved with a little bit of imagination. If we fail this time, it will be a failure of imagination. Like you notice that it's not a failure of effort or a failure of not lack of knowledge. Like it is, it is the imagination and the curiosity and the wonder is what sparks everything else. Yeah. So well said. I couldn't agree more. Okay, final question. Is there somewhere that people can read the essays that you wrote for these contests? Are they collected somewhere? It'll be in the book. Okay, so, and do you have a title yet for your book or is it still working title? It's called However the Fire Burns. And that's just in reference to the metaphorical fire or life force. Like sometimes it'll feel a little bit dimmed and sometimes it'll be a raging kind of blaze of passion that we have for life. But wherever it is, like whatever the state of your fire, you just got to honor. Yeah, honor honor the life that you have and, and, and fight for it. And when things feel a bit dark, like you just gotta ignite that curiosity and keep going, however the fire burns. Yeah, it's a beautiful title. I'm proud of it, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Yeah, you're welcome. It's really been an honor to have this conversation and get to know you a bit. And you are truly an inspiring human. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. If you like the show, I'd so appreciate it if you could rate it, subscribe, and share it with people you think would love it. It's an unpaid labor of love, and your support encourages me to keep it coming. Check out the show notes for links to my coaching website, lizwilson.com, and my coaching blog, trackingyes.com. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, have a great week and keep the compass lined up with yes. <laughs>